this morning we are going to continue with our series in the book of Luke. Um, and as we get started today, I'm going to give you a quick pop quiz. Now, don't worry. Some of you are like, crud. Um, don't worry, you're not going to be graded on this. And for sure, this has nothing to do with uh, your salvation and where, where you are walking with the Lord. I'm just going to assure you of that right now. Um, I simply want to see if you recognize a quote from a famous, famous novel. So here goes. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Any guesses as to where that quote came from? A tale of two cities. That's right. We have some learned people in here. Yes, if you got that right, pat yourselves on the back, give a thumbs up to your neighbor, whatever it is. Yes, I see a lot of thumbs up. That's a good thing. So Charles Dickens starts his novel with these drastic comparisons. Notice on one end of the spectrum, it was the best of times. And on the other end, it was the worst of times. As he begins his novel, he's demonstrating to his readers that there are polar opposites in the situations and environments which will unfold throughout his novel. He demonstrates that, in essence, this is a story of a time of extreme opposites, and that there are no in-betweens, there's no middle ground. It's either the best or worst of times. It's the age of either wisdom or foolishness. It's the season of either light or darkness. It's one or the other. Now, here's the deal. While Charles Dickens was a celebrated author, that's not why we're here today. I'm not going to do a whole thing on Charles Dickens. Many of you left that years ago. But I do want us to take out our Bibles and go to Luke 11 because I think there is a tie-in here. Um, as we go through this morning. So for those of you who are newer to Portview, as I said before, we've been going through the the book of Luke. We've been going through his gospel chapter by chapter, and we're trying to see some main themes that Luke is communicating about Jesus' life on earth. And after a couple of weeks, we're picking back up at Luke 11. And as I was going through Luke 11, I noticed a theme that made me think of this opening quote that I just read from A Tale of Two Cities. I noticed that there are two opposing kingdoms at work and that there is no middle ground between them. Throughout this chapter, Jesus is going to teach some very pointed principles which do not leave room for any gray areas. He's going to talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He's going to talk about walking in light or being in darkness. And so we're going to investigate these things Uh, this morning. And so if you are in Luke chapter 11, let's go to verse 14. And for the moment, we're going to just read through verse 23. And it says there, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, 
every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So in Luke four, or in verse 14, Luke gives us a very brief synopsis of what is going on. In essence, he wants to get to the main crux of, of what is going on and, and the main point of the message, but he needs to give us a little bit of a backdrop. And it's almost as though he's giving us a quick news headline. It's almost like he's saying, hi, I'm Luke, I'm from Jerusalem Network News, and here's the story. Jesus cast a demon out of a man. The man had been mute while he was possessed, but then he spoke. Oh, and oh yeah, the people were all amazed at what just happened. And then he says, let's move on. So it's, it's like, here's the quick story, but here's the bigger part of the story. Or, as some people would say, the rest of the story, right? Luke wanted us to know the general scenario, but he really wanted to draw our attention to some other responses in the crowd and Jesus' teaching that followed. So he shows us two negative reactions to Jesus' miracle. The first reaction came from a group who rejected Jesus outright. They said, nope. And they accused him of being associated with and working with Satan. They said, there's no way that you could be who you claim to be. You have to be working with Satan. The second response came from a group of fence-sitters who needed more evidence in order to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one. So we're going to look at this group's response just a little bit later, so just make a mental note of them for now. So Jesus addresses this first group, and it's here that we really begin to see the idea of the two kingdoms that Luke is trying to emphasize. Jesus says, in a a way, think about this for a minute, guys. If a nation or a house is divided against itself, if there's division in it, that nation or house is going to crumble. It's not going to be able to stand. If there's a civil war going on in a country, there's really nothing good going on right then. There's only destruction and chaos, and people are just getting hurt and torn down. There's no good coming out of that. So similarly, in the spiritual realm, if Satan is divided against himself, then his kingdom also will not stand. Why would Satan send one of his men to go cast other men out of someone that they've possessed? That just wouldn't make sense, right? Satan was not opposing himself because that would cause his kingdom to crumble. And we know we don't hold him very highly, but he's also not an idiot. He's not going to just do things that are going to tear himself down. That wouldn't make any sense. But instead, guys, here is what would make sense. And not only is this more likely, this is what is happening. If it isn't by Satan's power that I'm casting out demons, 
then it must be by the power of God that I'm doing this. And in fact, that is the case. And I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom that you've been waiting for all these years, all these centuries, has now come. God has sent his representative to begin to do the work that needs to be done to take back what the enemy has torn down and stolen for so long. So Jesus, in power and authority, was casting out demons, and he was wreaking havoc in Satan's kingdom. And this revealed, again, that the kingdom of God had begun. And since Jesus was delivering people and freeing them from Satan's control, the obvious conclusion is that the kingdom of God had come to them. And so Jesus goes on to explain this warring between the two kingdoms by telling a quick parable in verses 21 and 22. He starts off and he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. And what he's basically saying here is that Satan is a fierce, forceful, dominating ruler. He has power. There's no bones about it. He has fully armed himself with all kinds of demons, and they protect his interests. He and his demons are going to do whatever they can to control what they've already taken over. They're not going to give it up lightly. And so this you need to know. And what he and his henchmen possess seems safe enough because few powers in this world can overtake him. Okay? So we have this picture that Satan is this strong man, and he's doing what he can to continue to exert his power and, and rule over whatever he can. But, Jesus says in verse 22, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus explains that the entire situation changes in an instant when someone stronger than him comes onto the scene. That there is no longer this thing that we need to fear just Satan, okay? That now the kingdom of God has come and he's stronger and he's going to start taking back things one by one by one. When Jesus came and delivered the mute man from the demon that possessed him, he revealed that he was stronger than Satan. He revealed that, hey, here's evidence of who I am claiming to be. God is emphasizing the things that I am through these signs and these wonders, through the miracles, through the healings, through the casting out of demons. There is one here who is stronger than the one who had been. And he, Jesus, as a representative of the kingdom of God, had come to defeat Satan. The kingdom of God had begun, and it was without question opposed to the kingdom of Satan. So through this episode of Jesus' life, Luke points out to his readers that there are two kingdoms and that they are in extreme opposition to one another. The kingdom of Satan has been at work for a very long time, but now the kingdom of God has come to earth in the person of Jesus. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't just point out this information so that it's, it's good information to have, right? It's not, yay, I have the knowledge there's a kingdom of God and a kingdom of Satan. No, he gives us this information because there is a decision that he is saying we each need to make. And here's what it is. In verse 23, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
when I read that, I don't see any middle ground. There's no gray area, right? It's either you're for me or you're against me. You and I are either for the kingdom of God or we're against the kingdom of God. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's like, oh, I can have one foot over here and one foot over here. No, we have to make a choice. We cannot be neutral about this. In fact, Jesus continues to speak to the crowd, warning them of the danger in trying to be neutral toward the kingdom of God, trying to say, I'm okay, I don't need Jesus in my life. Look at verse 24. He says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, Jesus tells the story of an unclean spirit who had left a person. And we actually don't know why it had left, only that it had left. So we have the pertinent details for what Jesus is trying to convey here. And he says that while the unclean spirit was gone, the person was able to clean their life up a little bit. So imagine for a moment that someone is controlled by some struggle, some addictive habit, something in their life that has just controlled them for a long time. And somehow, they have overcome this addiction on their own. And they, you know, maybe they went through, we'll say, 12 steps or, or whatever along those lines. And now they are no longer feeling like they are overcome by this. And that they're kind of, they're set free. But even though they're set free, they haven't really said anything to, as far as Jesus is concerned. And they're just saying, yeah, I'm going to just hold off on that. I'm going to just continue. Look at what I've been able to do. I've been able to accomplish this. I've been able to move forward. And Jesus is saying that there is a danger in that. Because if the person does not pursue Jesus, but instead tries to stay neutral about him, Jesus is conveying here that they're inviting disaster. Jesus speaks of a sad, but unfortunately true, tendency of the human condition. And I'm not saying that this is 100% all the time, but this is a generalization. That a person who tries to and then overcomes things on their own, they have a desire to reform, it often does not last long when it's done on his or her own. What we need as far as long-lasting help is we need the power of Jesus in our lives to overcome day by day by day. We need that powerful transformation of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey here, that it's not enough to simply be emptied of evil, to overcome that problem or habit uh, and say, hey, I did it. Rather, we need to seek Jesus and be filled with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit who will give us that strength and ability day by day to overcome it. Because when we don't, either we may, in a sense, fall off the wagon and get involved in those things again, or there might be a compounding effect and there could be additional things that we just continually fall into again at some point down the road. Again, we cannot be neutral about Jesus. We have to make a decision about him. 
Now, Jesus addresses another group or another way that people could handle the kingdom of God. Remember the fence sitters that we noted earlier? They had seen Jesus cast the demon out of the mute man, and the man began speaking again. And remember that they kept seeking a sign from him. They wanted to get more evidence that Jesus truly was the Messiah. So Jesus addresses them and how they were dealing with him, starting in verse 29. So let's take a look. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. For as Jonah... Uh, let's try that again. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus uses two examples from the Old Testament to confront these fence-sitters. He acknowledges that they are looking for more evidence, but because he knows really the background of their heart and that they're really not interested, he refuses to give them another sign. He instead points them to his message, the message of the kingdom, the message that the kingdom of God is here, it is available, it is at hand his message that God has sent his son to redeem all of mankind and that the miracles and healings were only meant to point to the truth of his message. His message is what mattered. The miracles, the signs, the evidence were all just things that were going to enhance it, that were going to say, yes, this is true. This is what you need to believe. And so Jesus confronts these fence sitters with this message. And he begins to talk about some people that were non-Jews. You know, Jesus is teaching in a Jewish audience, in essence, or for the most part. And so to now talk about Gentiles was going to grab their attention a little bit, at least perhaps. So Jesus commends the Queen of the South. Some of us may know her as the Queen of Sheba, who visited Solomon back in 1 Kings. And what we know is that she traveled a great distance to hear from Solomon. And Jesus points that out here, and that after meeting with Solomon and hearing his wisdom, she gave praise to the Lord. She said, I know that God has been doing some incredible things here because of what you've been telling me, what you've said about God. And so she believed and she, she understood what was going on. Similarly, Jesus commends the men of Nineveh. Now, We all know this, well, I shouldn't say all. Most of us know the story of Jonah and how he went to Nineveh. Well, here's the deal. The men of Nineveh were just vicious, vile, cruel, wicked men of war. They did things that we would think are incomprehensible. Uh, In their battles, they just were vicious. They destroyed their enemy completely. They, they really left no one standing. They said, we're done. And so they were vicious, and yet they repented and turned from their wickedness when Jonah came and proclaimed God's message to them. And Jesus points to these stories 
to show these fence-sitters the error of their thinking and the error of their decision to wait for further review. He says, look at the queen of the south, guys. She changed because of the message of God through Solomon. And here's what I also need to tell you. Solomon had many faults. But I'm here, and I'm greater than Solomon. I'm perfect. I don't have the faults like Solomon did. And look at the people of Nineveh. They were horrible, wicked, cruel people. But they repented because of God's message through Jonah. And guess what? Jonah also had his faults, and he did not even like or care for the people of Nineveh. He did not want to go to Nineveh at all. He wanted them to burn. He wanted them destroyed. He wanted, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah to happen again. He wanted the fire and brimstone to fall on them. And Jesus is saying, guess what, guys? I'm not like Jonah. I'm greater than he is because I am Jesus. I am the Messiah, the perfect Son of God, and I have come to the people whom I dearly love. And I want to extend a message of hope, of peace, of reconciliation, and of God's love. Yet, here's the deal that I have with you. You reject me and you won't listen. And so the evidence, the stories of of the Queen of Sheba and of Nineveh, they're going to come and they're going to condemn you because they listened to the message of God through them, but you don't. And so condemnation is going to come to you. And by continuing to want more evidence before they would believe the message of the kingdom through Jesus, Jesus is saying that their unbelief will condemn them. Their choice is going to bear some consequences. And they have the choice. It is their choice. But they also need to know that it will bear some consequences. At the end of the chapter, we see yet another way that people approach the kingdom of God. Verses 37 to 54 says this, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. 
You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So Luke tells us the story of Jesus at dinner with a group of Pharisees and lawyers. Sounds like a great time, right? The host Pharisee became offended when Jesus did not perform the ceremonial washing before dinner. And Jesus noticed his reaction, and he confronted then the whole group of the Pharisees about their skewed focus on religious works. He said that they had so focused their attention on religious deeds and practices that they had completely wandered from the heart of God. They were trying to do it their own way. They were trying to earn God's favor. But they, in a sense, didn't even know God anymore. They didn't have a relationship with him. And they were missing out on being with God and hearing what he really wanted for them. And I remember a time like this in my own life. Because as I was growing up in the church, I remember probably middle school age, I thought, I know what I need to do for my walk with the Lord. I need to read through the Bible, and I'm going to write down every command that's in the Bible, and that's what I'm going to follow. Almost like, you know how the Supreme Court has the Ten Commandments posted in their, in their chambers and things like that? That was what I was going to do for myself. I thought, hey, if I can have a list of everything that I need to follow, how can I go wrong? <laughs> yeah, way wrong, right? You know, because how, how am I supposed to follow things of the Levitical law you know, I don't have to do sacrifices anymore. I don't think my parents would have appreciated me going out back and doing whatever uh, with, with some animals. Um, I th- I'm sure the cops would have come more than, more than they should have. But I think I had that mentality that I needed to do the right things rather than focus on who I needed to be. And I think so often we can get caught up in that, that we have to do the right things, that we have to follow all of the rules and regulations rather than let God come in and change my heart, transform me from the inside out, and then let my actions just be evidence of that. And so they, the Pharisees, had majored on the minors, right? We, a lot of times you hear, don't major on the minors, come on. But they had focused on the minutia of external acts and details. And because of that, they overlooked what was truly important in the eyes of God. In their own eyes, they thought that they were all good. But they were only focused on the external religious acts. And Jesus says that their hearts and souls were filled with greed and wickedness. They were diligent about washing their outsides, but not their insides. They remembered to bring in the tithe, which was great. They even brought in tithes of their garden herbs. Can you imagine, like, your produce, and you come and you, you count, okay, I've got 12 tomatoes. All right, I need to bring 1.2 tomatoes to the Lord. Mm, just, just round. Uh, it'll be cleaner. Um, but that's what they did. They were so focused on making sure that I'm tithing exactly that they chopped up their basil exactly like it needed to be. And they brought in one-tenth of it. They loved and sought out praise and attention from others. But they neglected justice and the love of God, which was even dearer to God's heart. They loaded people down with heavy religious requirements. They could not even bring themselves to believe the truth about Jesus 
And because of that, they were steering other people away because of their actions and their behaviors and what they were saying. Jesus wanted to clean up their hearts so that their insides and their outsides could be clean. But they wanted nothing to do with that. He was calling them and us to focus on the most important things, loving God and loving people, the ones created in God's image. He said, quit majoring on the minor things, those minute external acts. Instead, focus on loving God. Have a relationship with him. Listen to him and follow his principles. Follow what he's going to reveal to you that lines up with his word. And as part of that, focus on loving people as well. Pursue justice for them. Show compassion to them. Hey, here's a thought. Just smile at them. Maybe that would do something. But the Pharisees didn't like that approach. In a sense, they just said to Jesus, Nah, I'm good. I don't need to do that. I'm going to keep following my religious rules. And if I keep doing them right, I know I can earn God's favor. I should be able to please him. So, so far this morning, we've seen this idea of the two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and we've seen how a person could try to handle whose side they are on. They might try to stay neutral, but we saw earlier that that doesn't really work. They might want more evidence so that what they're doing is staying in unbelief, and that doesn't really work either. Or they might be meticulous about following religious rules, but in the process, they miss out on having a relationship with God and what he is truly all about. So that also doesn't work. So I think it begs the question then, what does work? What does work as far as how we approach God and his kingdom? So tucked in a few verses, Jesus explains a healthy approach to the kingdom of God. Look at verse 34. He says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus, in these verses, encourages, and I would even venture to say that he implores us and he urges us, each person, each one of us, to focus their eyes on the light, that light being Jesus himself. It becomes a shift in our focus, our attitude, our attention, that we are going to keep our eyes focused on Jesus in everything. And when he says, your eye is the lamp of your body, he's talking about our spiritual understanding or insight and the condition of our heart. Our understanding, our heart, that will filter Jesus' message of the kingdom of God and the truth about Jesus to our whole life. And that's where he wants to change us on the inside, to transform us so our lives can reflect him. So if our understanding is good, you know, if the, the eye is good, because we have opened ourselves up to the light of Christ, then our whole life begins to be filled with Christ's revelation and we are open to his guidance and his work in us. The opposite also is true, that if we have shunned the truth about Jesus, our eye is bad in essence, or that we have said that we will do things our own way, then our insight and heart are in a bad condition. And thus, our life is filled with darkness, or our life lacks Christ's influence and guidance in our lives. 
And with that quick contrast between these two opposing approaches, Jesus invites us to something. He invites all of us, all people, both his original listeners right here in Luke 11 and those of us in the church today, you and me. He invites us to choose to set our eyes on him, the representation and embodiment of the kingdom of God. As he is the representative, we can follow him and we can look to his example. And he says that all who focus their eyes on him and his teaching will be transformed as they absorb and then reflect the light of God's truth. He lovingly challenges us to examine ourselves, to be careful lest the light in you be darkness. He's inviting us on a journey. He invites us each and every day to walk with him, to to keep our eyes fixed on him, where he is at, and say, I'm going to follow you and what you are speaking to me, rather than you know what, I don't want anything to do with you, or I don't believe that, I don't have, I think, yeah, I haven't seen enough yet, or we try to do it our own ways. Instead, Jesus is saying, come follow me. Follow what I have for you. I have life that is awesome for you. You see, there are two opposing kingdoms at work in the world even today. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. And we can choose either light or or darkness. We can choose either to follow Jesus or to follow Satan. These are not my words or thoughts. Jesus himself said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Some try to stay neutral, not accepting or following Jesus, but trying just, hey, I'm going to just try to be a decent person. Some people want convincing proof before they will follow Jesus with their lives. Others feel they can control their destiny by earning God's favor and following all the religious rules, but they miss out on that relationship with Jesus and what he has to offer them. Jesus says that those things don't work. He says you are either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground at all. There is a line in the sand, in essence, and you need to decide what side you are on. And sometimes we can think that sounds harsh, to have such an absolute distinction. Especially in our Western world minds, we don't like to have two polar opposite choices. Okay, so you say A or B. Can I have C? That's a lot of times where we go. But Jesus is saying, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no gray area that we are either with him or against him. And here's what I also want to say. Because sometimes we can get so focused on that that we're like, well, I have to be ready before I can. And Jesus is not expecting perfection. He is not expecting that we will never have questions. Like, life happens, right? And it can shake us sometimes, or it causes us to think, hmm, well, how does that work? Based on what I know of Jesus, how does that work? Jesus is not saying we have to be perfect and just follow him blindly. We can explore, we can ask the questions. Because you know what? He is big enough to handle any question that we could ever throw at him. And he just says, come, follow me. And he also doesn't expect that we will never mess up. Like, we may, well, we may. I, for one, mess up constantly. I constantly mess up. But 
The idea is my heart is always wanting to follow the Lord. And I'm learning more and more that even when I mess up, I don't have to wait a certain period of time before I can come back to the Lord. Like I can return immediately. Like I can see, oh crud, that's what I just did. Lord, forgive me. Help me to walk with you again. Like, we don't have to stay in that and, or, or say, I have to get perfect. I have to get better. Guess what? Jesus wants to help you through that. He wants to give you that power and that strength, that transforming work in your life so that it becomes easier. It may not ever be easy, but it will be easier. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can walk through any situation because of what Christ has done in me. He simply invites us to walk with him, to start walking and keep walking with him. He invites us to take the step, to cross the line over onto his side, and to trust God and walk with him. We may, and I venture to say we will, have unanswered questions. We will struggle with situations or with sin in our lives. And again, he simply invites us to choose him, to follow him, and allow the truth of Jesus to be revealed in our lives and continue to seek him day by day. Would you stand as we pray this this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love that you show us each day. We thank you for the invitation that you extend to us to follow you, to walk with you, to surrender our lives to you so that you can do the work in us that needs to be done, that we don't have to go it alone. In fact, we shouldn't go it alone, but that you will do a powerful work in us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that opportunity. And this morning, I I do feel that there are maybe some here who are just dealing with this and saying, I don't know what to do with Jesus. I, I haven't made a choice. I haven't made a decision. And I have questions. I have things that have happened in my life, and I'm just not sure. But today, you're feeling something in your heart. You're feeling something different. And I would say that that is Jesus' invitation to you this morning. And he may be speaking specifically to you, saying, will you come with me? Will you follow me? And so if that's you this morning, I don't want to embarrass anyone. But if that's you this morning and you're saying, I think I want to start walking with him and start to have questions answered, to start to follow him and see where he leads me. If that's you this morning, would you just quickly lift up your hand and say, yes, that's me. I want to walk with with the Lord. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I thank you for these who have raised their hands and are saying, I want to walk with you. Whether this is the first time or the umpteenth time, that we are saying we want to walk with you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would begin that work in their hearts and their lives, even now. That you would take them 
that you would draw them to you and that they would continue to follow you. That whatever questions they may have, whatever situations they may be dealing with, whatever sin they may be struggling with, that you right now would cleanse them, that you would wash over them, and that you would help them to walk in a new life starting in this moment. Lord, we thank you for your transforming work in our lives. We thank you that you invite us to follow you and that you walk with us and you just shower us with love day after day. You give us the strength that we need. So Lord, be in these lives, those who have raised their hands now to say, that's me, I want to walk with you. And if that was you this morning, you've begun a journey with the Lord, which is awesome. Or you've reset your journey and you're saying, I'm turning back towards the Lord. I encourage you before you go to bed tonight to talk to someone whom you trust, to talk to someone who you know loves the Lord as well and can help you with questions that you may have or even just to encourage you in what you're doing and what this decision that you've made to follow Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for the wonderful presence of your spirit in this place. We pray that you would be with us as we leave here today. Be glorified in each of our lives as we head out and as we go through this entire week day by day. May we walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. The altars are open if you would like to pray or if you would like to have prayer for you. Uh, Otherwise, God bless you. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful week.